Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today has been developing games for over 27 years, over 18 ship titles. He's worked on prestigious franchises such as Star Wars and Call of Duty. Jeffrey Kung, how you doing, man? Hello. <laughs> thanks for thanks. having me on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, the most obvious question to me is, how did you end up here? Considering you studied psychology, that was that that was the road you were going to go. <laughs> that and was the road up, I was going to go. Yeah, and you ended yeah. up going on a different path. Yeah, I, uh, I, my undergrad, I studied psychology. I graduated with a BA in psychology, and then I went on to immediately to graduate school for the next seven or eight years. And um, I was going to be a therapist, a, a psychologist. Um, and uh, I did all my coursework. I did all my internships. And actually, the internships is where I met my wife. Um, nice. And uh, I did everything except my dissertation. And for months and months and months, I was just banging my head. Uh, trying to figure out even a topic, let alone even begin to to write my dissertation. Um, but my wife pointed out that at the time, uh, this is like around the early 90s or mid 90s, um, I spent all my spare time making Doom levels. Uh, Doom and Doom 2. I think Doom came out in 92 or 93, and then Doom 2 came out in 94 or something like that. And... Uh, I was just enthralled with the Doom editor uh, utility thing. I think DEU is what they called it. And uh, I just made levels. I just cranked out levels all over the place and I would upload them to the internet. Um, there was a bulletin board back then. There weren't really much of in the way of social media, um, but uh, there was a bulletin board dedicated to Doom editor users. And that was where people can post questions, post guides. And I really got into it. And pretty soon, instead of asking questions, I was actually answering questions. Um, and I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is really kind of fun. And so I would upload levels and have people play them. And I would include like a little text file to go with it with my uh, email address and uh, a bunch of questions. And I would actually get feedback from players. Players would check it out, play it, and give me feedback. And then I would make revisions and put them back up and ask for more feedback. Um, so that's kind of how I cut my teeth in level design. It was just a hobby. Um, so my wife, at, at that time, my girlfriend, she said, you know what? This is what you are so passionate about. Why don't you make that into your career instead of psychology? Because my issue with psychology was I always bring home people's issues i could not let it go oh i see yeah and and i you know they require you to go through your own therapy in graduate school so i went oh. they require one year i ended up going three um and i even with therapy i couldn't really separate out all the issues from my clients and come home and not have them with me. They were always with me. I would dream about them. They would always be in my head, and I just could not get away from it. I wonder so, how common that is. I, I don't think know if it's you pretty know, common. Yeah, have you spoken to other I psychologists think, who have the same issue? Yeah, I think I think so. Some some of the students uh, that were with me, they they had similar issues. Um, some dealt them dealt with it better than others. I obviously I couldn't really deal with it. Um, it was pervasive. It was, it was intrusive, in fact. Yeah. Um, and so my wife realized that and she was like, you know what, maybe you should go do something else. Maybe do the thing that you 
do every day anyway go make go make games mm. um, well, you made the right call <laughs> yeah so i you know that was actually the perfect thing and i realized also you know that phd wasn't really for me i was really doing it for my parents and and that at that moment i was probably the first time i realized wow i need to do something just for myself i need to pick a mm. career that's just for me that is um something that speaks to me and level design was that right so um so when my wife said go do that instead of uh psychology i was like oh okay but i don't know how what how do i even get what in? do i do yeah so so i went to the local temp agency and said do you guys place people into game studios and they said well yeah we could put you into birdervan as a tester i'm like okay let's do that at the same time i also applied to lucasarts um, and they had a, a qa position that was open and that's why i applied there and uh next thing you know it's like after a month at birderbund um i got a call from lucasarts to come in and uh interview for the qa uh for the qa department so i did that as well and i got in and um uh, my whole goal was to just get to get my foot in the door and get in, in at the ground level and you know uh, qa as a tester six months later um during actually during uh my time as a QA tester, I got to know Kevin Schmidt. Um, it was on Outlaws. Um, and I kind of let him know, I was like, hey, I intend to come up into the design pit at some point. So, you know, so I, I delighted in totally breaking all of his puzzles and all of his layouts and stuff and, and writing up bugs for it. <laughs> um, and and it, was, it was an excuse to be able to go upstairs to the, uh, to the level design pit and just show them um, how I broke things. And that's how I got to know him. Um, and uh, sure enough, yeah. So sure enough, after after Outlaw shipped, um, uh, he he asked me if I wanted to take a level design test and come up. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> so the thing that I kind of and I had no idea there were some other people that were uh, also taking the test that unbeknownst to me. So um, I didn't know there was competition. I thought he was just talking to me about it. <laughs> um, but uh, but my time on Doom and making levels uh, included object placement, enemy placement, scripting, how to set up doors, all that kind of stuff. Um, that totally helped me with this test because he said, we're going to give you um, uh, an already kind of laid out level. Uh, it's about maybe two or three minutes worth of gameplay, maybe more. Um, and we want you to go and put in all the bad guys and put in all the, all the pickups. Um, health ammo and things like that so i i knew all that stuff already pretty well in terms of like getting all the feedback from my doom time and uh that just made it actually a pretty fun and easy task for this test i i did what i what i had learned to do in doom um and obviously they liked it and that's how i got into the uh design department so did sense. you know you had it after you did the test, were you like, yeah, I got this? Um, <laughs> how I confident were you? I, I was pretty confident. I really, really liked how it came out because I played tested over and over again as I was doing it. Um, and I go, oh, okay, this this actually plays pretty well. This feels like Outlaws. This feels like what I would do if I was actually doing this as my job. Um, so I was pretty confident, but not 100% sure by any means. Um, but, uh, but when I got the word, I was like, yay, <laughs> so excited. Um, so, so my, my first job as a designer, the title was object placer. 
I've never seen object placer again. So I did that for two games. Um, so you just place that, objects. Is that all you do? Is that yeah? Your role? So all I so but that include that included um, all the enemies and all the health and all the ammo. Right. So so I got I got my hands on all the gameplay on all the levels on the expansion pack for Outlaws, and then the next project was Mysteries of the Sith, um, Jedi Knight Mysteries of the Sith. Hmm. I touched all the levels for those, um, basically from, by scripting when enemies came in, when they spawned in, where where health pickups were and ammo pickups were. Um, that was my job, and it was like awesome. It was so it was so fun because I got to touch every single level. <laughs> yeah, because so there was... were a number of levels that you designed. Like there was one search for Nona. Is it Nona? Nona. Mm-hmm. That was um, and you and you cre recreated that level three times, if if I remember correctly. Yes. So that was uh that was the next project after Mysteries of the Sith, um, Rogue Squadron. Yeah. And and that particular and by the way, just a, a, a little Easter egg. Nona, spelled backwards, is Hannon, and that was our our texture artist, Buddy Hannon. <laughs> uh huh. Because <laughs> we couldn't think of a name, we were just tossing names around, and then. And then I forgot who came up with it, but just flipped his name backwards. And it's like, okay, it's the Nona. <laughs> Search for the Nona. Did he know that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he totally knew that. Yeah. Uh, knew that. Um, but yeah, so in Rogue Squadron, that was my first actual level design job. And uh, in that particular level, um, we wanted to mix it up a little bit and have have it kind of be random as to like which of these lakes you had to go to. And, it, and as, as it turns out, it wasn't as random as it would seem. Random, yes, in the location, but um, we've quickly figured out it would be very difficult to do, uh, to tune and, and to have the similar experience uh, from one lake to another um, without really copy pasting it. So I did, I just copy pasted the encounter that I created for one lake and then duplicated it two more times. Um, and then the randomness came in like which direction you had to go. So if you repeated it over and over again, you didn't know which lake you had to go to. Um, but in in hindsight, after it shipped and everything, <laughs> I think I realized it's not really that much of a choice because there's nothing different <laughs> at each lake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was still technically really, really difficult because all your your um, your squadron um, and all the uh, Tie Fighters and all the ships—they were all on splines. Everything was on splines, and so you you trip you triple the number of splines and the entire. And we didn't really have a good way to layer all the different um, uh, groupings of splines. So it was just complete spaghetti chaos on your monitor at any given <laughs> moment, and. You just had to kind of live in the level to understand how it all worked and how everything kind of fit together. I, I still can, if I close my eyes, I can still see those lines. Because the, de the development you did on Rogue Squadron was pretty intense from what I understand. I mean, you guys banged it out in nine months. Mm -hmm. I remember Kevin speaking about it, but you right. were doing intense hours, right? Yeah, there were there were times we were pulling really long hours, especially at the end of of some um, milestones. Um, 
just trying to get stuff in as 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 quickly as we could um like 100 hour weeks 110 hour weeks oh i don't know if it was that long but it was pretty good it was good it was it was pretty long i mean we'd be there you know late at night dinners and stuff and and be there until 11 12 midnight get home super late and come back super early the next morning yeah yeah um so yeah it was it was a rough slog a lot of the a lot of the projects in the early days like that were um very very crunchy very uh, long hours um kind given of horrible that, actually <laughs> yeah i mean given that you studied psychology was there mm-hmm. an element of that that you could kind of be more in tune with some of your peers if they weren't in the right space mentally as a result and do you know how um, to pick it out and maybe assist them or were you just so entrenched in your work that you weren't even thinking about anyone else? Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I made some very, very good friends. In fact, I'm, you know, friends with Kevin still to this day and a whole crew of us are still really, really good friends after 25, 26, 27 years. Um, so you do build that bond. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a bit of a crucible when you're, when you're in the trench working all those long hours together and really get to know each other really well. Um, I didn't really use my psychology background for any of that, really. Not until I became a lead. Right. Can you incorporate? Yeah. So you can you incorporate it though? I think so. Way. Yeah. 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 Now, now that I, you know, I've gotten I've gotten a lot older. I've I've learned so many things about how I am as a lead and how I am um, with um, direct reports. And the thing that that's I think most helpful that i that i learned from from my days in in graduate school is is in my training is being able to listen um actively listen being able to hear what somebody is saying and so what i what i usually do when i go into a a first one-on-one with somebody um who's a direct report i tell them you know the what we say here is totally safe what we say here doesn't lead unless uh what you say affects the game in some way um uh or if what you say uh is affecting you by somebody else or you are affecting somebody else in a negative way Mm. Uh, those are the only two times i tell them i i will have to report that upwards um to leadership and then i would tell them that would be doing that but other than that everything else they say stays private and that's part of my training as a as a therapist is you know everything is a secret nothing leaves the room um and i tell them i don't even take notes this is just this time is for you and so this it's a way for for me to not to to really understand not not just like who they are as a designer what their strengths and weaknesses are as a designer and how we can help them um improve but it also lets me see who they are as a person what's their motivation for being a designer what's their um what's the thing that kind of gets them going in the morning to come to work uh or what's not you know uh so those kinds of things are are i think um i think important and helps me understand who who my teammates are and who who like what their needs are um and then that that lets me become a, a much better advocate for for the level designers who who are working for me. Um, yeah, well, I think it's an important part. I mean, one of the the common things I hear in the industry is obviously 
there's bad leadership and obviously you're dealing with creative people who have egos right and i think active listening you're you're bang on with it right because some people <laughs> are listening but they're not really listening they're like listening or they're waiting for their turn to talk yeah yeah and so yeah, sure. I and if you're working in a creative environment where everyone's trying to have a voice do you know how to ring that in if if people are just trying to talk over each other <laughs> oh yeah yeah i mean in meetings where where there are like butting heads i just stopped the meeting it's a, it becomes totally unproductive if people are just kind of bickering it's pointless so i i just stopped the meeting and then i pull the two people who are like you know at odds with each other i talk to one talk to the other and then i bring them together and it's like hey we need to work this out we need to figure this out we need to figure out how we move forward because this banging of the heads is not working Hmm. um so it's a little bit of a you know almost like couples therapy <laughs> <laughs> but hey if it works yeah it doesn't matter yeah. yeah well oftentimes it's just the other person needs to understand where where the other person is coming from and understand totally. like what their point of view is not just like oh they want to do it x y and z and this person wants to do it a b and c it's like well, why does this person want to do that and why does this other person want to do it the other way and mm. what's the common ground and how do we move past that um and that's the thing I've, I've noticed a lot of times in the industry that you know things like that just don't get addressed and then they fester and then the it spreads totally and then yeah. it just splinters the entire team I, i've seen that happen before um and i learned from that you know i, yeah. I watch i watch and watch and learn <laughs> Well, that's why good leadership is so important because it ripples, right? Ripples through the entire team. Always absolutely. comes from the top down. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I so, hope I'm a good leader. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a pretty good judge of character. I I, <laughs> I can I'm getting a sense here. So <laughs> with uh with Rogue Squadron, because you worked on the uh the Death Star trench run. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, how much star. how much of a star wars fan are you that's probably oh i was i was i was in heaven working at lucasarts okay so yeah, were you a, having a very much a fanboy moment when you were trying to recreate that oh my god yes of yeah. course <laughs> was, i was living kind of a dream working at lucasarts working on star wars games um on uh mysteries of the sith my uh i even though i was uh uh uh, object placer um schmitty kevin schmidt said hey why don't you uh actually i don't know if i asked him or if he asked me to make a multiplayer level and i had the idea it's like oh i want to do a, a moisture evaporator farm and nice. that was my that was my thing and, and i created a trap in there in the water tanks where you can trap people um uh, in the water and they just drown and die <laughs> so, <laughs> that was that was my first ever um professionally made level so <laughs> and how did you feel at the end of it oh i was did ecstatic the sense was... of the catharsis when it was over yeah it was yeah. like it's like wow okay this is my first level um i just I scoured the internet to see if there's any like footage of it and there isn't and i wish there was um but uh yeah i was super proud of that um it was it took a while to kind of put together because um, I had to kind of do it on my sort of on my own time because mm. my main job was to make sure all the levels had all the enemies placed and all the all the pickups done. 
Um, but then when I had a little bit of time, I would work and learn the tools and how to create, how to block out the space and how to texture it. And back then we textured everything. We did all the art ourselves. Mm. Uh, most of it, the, the environment stuff. Um, I can't imagine how any one person can do that today. No, no. But, but, uh, but it was, um, it was a great learning experience. I learned a ton. Um, time management, how to how to decide when to like, okay, this is good enough. I need to move on because you know the clock's ticking. Mm. Uh, so that was really interesting to 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 figure out. Um, but yeah, you got it in there and it shipped. So I was super happy about that. <laughs> what do you what do you think is the most fundamental thing about level design? Because obviously, obviously, every game, the level design is going to be different depending on the game. But there must be some sort of transferable skill almost that you can apply to any game. I would it's think. Really, I think, in my opinion, it's really understanding who your players are. Who Who is this game for? Um, is it for a hardcore group? Is it for right. casual players? Um, is it for fans of star wars are you trying to pull in a lot of different people who may not be fans of star wars mm. uh, it's just understanding who the player is and um i think that's even more important nowadays um because the the market is so segmented to you know all different genres of video games people people like certain things um but how do you get how do you get a game that has super wide appeal and pulls them in that big funnel of like, yeah, this game is going to be awesome. Come in and play. Um, you got to deliver on all fronts for these different types of players. Um, well, that so would, just... that would, I would think that would be the hardest thing because what yes. one person considers easy, another person might consider hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And understanding that is, is, is kind of a, a little bit of a Holy grail because it's it is very very difficult it's hard to predict how players are going to react to your game that's why i think kind of live ops games are fantastic for that because you release a game it's not done but you get feedback from players so i spent about almost 10 years in the mobile market um making mobile games action games and you just get reams and reams and reams of data all this data about your players where they get stuck where they stop playing. Um, so you start to investigate, well, why did they stop playing at this point? Was it the level? Was it some other feature that they didn't like? Um, data analysts can look at how a player progresses through a game and kind of pinpoint um, en masse where players are, are getting frustrated and just bailing. And then those are the things you can actually go in and fix. And then you can get more data and see if players move on. If they do, awesome. Then you've done the right thing. Um, so I think in terms of just live ops, you're able to really continue to not only deliver new content to players, but to tune the game so that you know more players flow through it and don't get stuck and, and basically bail on the game. Mm, mm. Um, Whereas if you, if you do a um, a standalone box game, um, when it's out, it's out. Maybe you have maybe you could do content updates, but it's not the same as the live ops game, uh, where you where you're constantly getting feedback 
uh, through data and also feedback from 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 um, uh, players' voices, people talking about the game, um, directly giving feedback to to the dev uh, group about the game. Um, so, so yeah. Hmm. Well, that was kind of what you were doing. It's not ops, but you were kind of doing that anyway with Doom, weren't you? You were kind of, I mean, you were sending it out, you were getting feedback, and then you were yeah, applying yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly yeah I, was kind of, I was asking asking for that feedback so I can kind of tune tune the level to a place where it, it felt more polished. Yeah, yeah. Do you still is your uh, levels that you did for Doom is that available anywhere? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. So. Oh, actually, yes. If you so, um, I want to give it a how... jam. Say what? I want to give it a jam. I want to. Oh. I want to play it. <laughs> there's there's a there's a book out there called the oh what is it called the programmers doom programmers guru something something or other it's really about level design i don't know why they had the programming word in there <laughs> um but it's got this blue um devil imp person in front uh one of the one of the main character one of the uh, more common characters in doom um they approached me and asked me if if they could take one of my levels and include it on a cd disc so oh, if you're able sick. to if you're able to find this book uh with the cd still in it um my level's in there <laughs> wow and I, and I got credit for it too in, in the credits in that book <laughs> i mean during during the covid lockdowns i had a bit of free time so i actually uh -huh. made quite a few doom levels Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And so it very much gave me a huge appreciation for what level designers do because it's it's very difficult to create something from scratch. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah you have yeah. to have a you have to have a concept and and a lot of patience because it takes a while to get it together. Because when you first put it together, it takes a long time, a longer time than you would think to block out um the space. Because it, it, the first time you do it, it's never it never feels right. So you're constantly iterating, and you can iterate forever. So at some point, you need to kind of stop and start to texture things and get things, get enemies put in. Um, and as you progress through your level, you start to you start to figure out like what works and what doesn't, what yeah. feels right. Um, but it, it, it all takes time. But also, like say if you're designing a level and it's great. It might be great in isolation. Like if you if you use that same, I don't want to, I suppose gimmick is, you can use gimmick, I suppose, in this instance. But if you were to use that gimmick constantly, then it would get tedious after a while. So you wouldn't want yeah. four levels doing the same sort of thing that you did in that first level that yeah. made that first level good. So that's the other thing as well. You got to try and think up new stuff or yeah. new ideas. It's, a, it's the pacing really uh, yeah. what you're talking about and i learned that early on with with my time in doom because i when i first made my levels i just put enemies everywhere and it was just yeah constant... i did the same i did the same yeah, yeah it's this constant barrage of enemies coming at you and you get this fatigue and this actual this boredom that comes up where it's just doing the same thing over and over again and then so i learned to to kind of just pull back like 75% of the enemies that I put in. And then all of a sudden, it felt more interesting. Because um, you didn't know, you turn a corner, if there's anybody going to be there. And if there isn't, you're like, oh, now what? Mm. <laughs> right? And so then, yeah. then you, start, you sort of start to 
uh, think about like, um, well, when's the next enemy gonna come out? Um, of course, if you're the level designer, you know exactly the enemies are gonna come out. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But but you try to play as if you're playing it for the first time and thinking about how that actually might feel to a player. Um, I always tell level designers when when you're creating a level, it's a little bit like. You know, when you were a little kid playing in a sandbox, literally in a sandbox with trucks and toys and whatnot, you have this narrative going on in your head as a kid, like, you know, this truck's going to go over here and crash into that truck over there. And this thing's going to, whatever, whatever's going on. I do that when I'm making levels. I'm like thinking, oh, the player's going to come down here and, oh, maybe this guy will pop out over there and, and he's got to traverse this over here. And, oh, they got a puzzle, got to figure out. It's this constant narrative going on in my head about the moment-to-moment -moment things that the player is going to be doing and seeing and feeling. Um, and more often than not, that kind of play in my head gets translated directly into the level that I'm making. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of weird thinking about that and seeing what I'm thinking come out and actually come in, in this 3D format where things are actually coming out the way I thought it like, would come out in my head. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a, a little story that kind of gets realized in the game itself. Um, nobody knows about it. Nobody will see that. Nobody will understand like what my internal narrative was about it. But what it what it help what it does to help me in creating a level is is that. Um, that moment-to-moment -moment, uh, experience that happens when you're playing through what happens in my head it gets translated directly into the level itself. But do you do you have instances where, say, you get someone to play test a level, and you think they're going to do something a certain way, and then they they do something completely different, and it throws you off, and you're like, ah, oh, okay. Oh, Always. I definitely need to change. I definitely need to change this. <laughs> Always, especially early on, like initial blockout levels. Um, we get people on the team to play. Um, it's almost cringy what people do, and that's because of me. You know, it's like, oh, I left that unblocked over here, and they can get through and kind of circumvent the whole thing, or mm. you know, something that I overlooked. Um, that's why we play test as much as we do. Yeah. Um, because you can't you can't um, account for all the mistakes that you're making because you, it's just a massive amount of work that you're putting in. There's there, there's going to be holes. There's going to be bugs. There's going to be logic bugs. There's going to be physical bugs. Um, things that that will block the player um, that you had no idea was happening. You, you run through it yourself. Even I, I always tell level designers when you're testing your own level, try to play it a different way each time. Uh, that doesn't work because everybody keeps playing the level the same way because they want to just to make sure that one thing that they just added works. But if they play it a different way, they might find a bug that they completely overlook. Mm. You know, the more the more we can do that, um, the less QA has to find all of those bugs too, right? Yeah. It, it leaves the, it frees them up to find more important bugs. So the more we could do on the level design side to clean up. Um, uh, a complete playthrough, for instance, and making sure the player doesn't fall out of the world, the, you know, the player doesn't get stuck in anywhere uh, that you would, you kind of just assume the player wouldn't get stuck. Um, you just can't assume that. So 
being able to kind of traverse through the entire level, play through the entire level, do things that you normally don't do, um, you might be able to find some bugs. And that's the that's a QA head in my my in my initial training as a QA person is just like break everything. Figure out different ways of breaking things and playing different ways so that you can find different ways to break the level. Um, and so I sort of think that way when I'm when I'm making a level. Like how do I break this? How do I how do I mess this up? So when you worked on Obi-Wan, were you referencing the Phantom Menace a lot, the film, when you were designing the level? You designed two levels, didn't you? Was it two yeah. levels that you designed? Yeah. I think so. God, I don't even remember the levels that I made in that in that game. <laughs> um, that game went through two different phases. It was, um, uh, if I remember correctly, it was for PC, and then and then the second iteration came along, and that became the Xbox game. Yeah. Um, I don't really remember the project all that well, to be honest. Um, a bit of a blur. It was a total blur. That was also kind of a uh, a death crunchy type of uh, overtime game. <laughs> there was, how there was how late... do you function in those type of conditions, right? Where you're just crunching. You're probably I, not even leaving your chair. I you know, go to the toilet. Like... Not really. Um, it was hard. I mean, anytime we crunched, it was hard. And... Um, one time in, in another studio, um, we were really late because the tools that we had requested from the 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 editor vendor, um, it was for the, um, the PSP, and the editor wasn't really ready for the PSP yet. So halfway through production, halfway through the time we were supposed to be making this game, we didn't have a functional editor, so we couldn't even what? play test our levels. No, it was it was horrible. So when we got the when we when we're eight, when, when we're finally able to get the game playing on the PSP, we were, should have been halfway done, and we didn't get it extended. So all of that time we had to get compressed in to finish the game, and we did, but it came at a cost. Um, God, that must fender, be frustrating. Two fender benders yeah. <laughs> that I that I caused because I was uh, luckily they were just fender benders. It could have been much worse. I was like falling asleep at the wheel going home. Really? Was it that bad? It was That's that bad. Good. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it got so bad that I, I requested um, the company put me up in a hotel nearby the studio so that I wouldn't have to drive home. Um, and so they did that for like the last week or so of crunch before we had to ship. So I basically lived at the office for a week. <laughs> is In all the cases you've done crunch, is it usually a result of management? Is it just a miscalculation of something or is it a result of something breaking or one individual that maybe forgets something or is it a combination of all things? Like It's a combination of all of that. It's yeah. just uh, unforeseen issues that constantly crop up that you you think you've planned for everything and then a big chunk of other things come up that you you can't really account for but then you still have to make this game in time um so it's 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 frustrating um i think the industry has learned a lot over the years um mm. certainly back when the that infamous ea uh wives letter came out to kind of expose how oh, horrible yes. the crunch uh 
that actually made a huge difference. I think Did it? that made people, yeah, I think it made people kind of, kind of sit up and listen and like, oh, yeah, maybe we're not doing this right. We're burning people out left and right. And you're losing all that institutional knowledge when people quit or move on to another studio. Um, and, and that's something that I've definitely noticed. And when I, when I started in, in, uh, in mobile, in my nine or 10 years, I might have had maybe total two hours of overtime. <laughs> and overtime is a misnomer because we're all salaried mm. at this point. And so it's really not overtime. It's just extra time. Right. And I only had like maybe two or three hours max in those nine to 10 years in mobile. Um, and I think in the, the mobile, the mobile uh, game companies learned because they want to try to keep to a schedule of release of release yeah. dates for, for new content. They figured out how to streamline the process, how to optimize the process, how to, how to, how to properly figure out how long it takes to create a level so they they would go to the content creators like the level designers how long does it take to create a level how and then they talk to the environment as how long does it take to art up that level and then at at the very core figure out like just how long does it take to create a particular type of content and then um because that way they can predict when they can make releases and then promise those releases to the players and then get it all going on it like basically a conveyor belt uh, to get all that content out and because of that we had no crunch we knew exactly what we were building how long it would take to build it um test it and vet it before it goes out and then if we made any mistakes because it's a live ops game you can like tune it and fix any problems that that fell through the cracks um and Makes i think sense. that's i think that trickled out to the games industry in general, uh, from what I could see, um, you know, I'm at I'm at Lost Boys right now, and we haven't hardly crunched at all. I mean, I still work extra hours here and there, but there's no mandates to like we have to do 60 hours this week or you know, 60 hours that week or whatever. There's n never been a mandate for any of that. Um, so well, you definitely you, you definitely don't want to be doing that stuff when you're older. No. Like you don't want to be like in your fifties and you're still doing crazy crunch. No, I couldn't. I couldn't do that today. Yeah. Um, I would just go insane. I I would have to quit. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean that's probably the the most common thread with game developers. I find is the whole crunch thing. It feels like it's like a rite of passage. Every every game developer goes through it. Right. They, yeah. they all crunch at some point, and some are more. Uh, more extreme than others yeah it's gotten better there's some studios that still do massive crunching that i that i've heard but uh for the most part i think the industry has heard and learned to to move on from that crunch culture um because it, it, i think people are finding that it is counterproductive i mean there's i think there's lots of studies out there to show that if you're doing um you know way more hours if you're crunching your productivity goes down if you're yeah, well, working right. beyond beyond eight if you're working beyond 10 8 12 hours a day after after which your productivity is is crap i mean you might as well not be working because you're making mistakes left and right and i know for a fact with with my work um after seven eight o'clock 
and we're and I know I'm going to be there for another three four hours. Um, it was a slog, and it was a slog just thinking through problems. I like it was really difficult to solve problems. So I wouldn't if there were bugs, I would do those early in the day, when my mind was more fresh, and then towards the end and during the crunch times, um, crunchy era hours late at night. Um, I did I tried to do just the lowest level stuff I could think of doing. Um, you know, just maintenance stuff or or whatever, just to get through. Um, because the expectation was you stay there until whatever you, whatever tasks you're on are done, and then you go home. Mm. But uh, but yeah, it was it, it, you know the the crunch hours. Well, glad you're in a good place now. There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to deal with that now, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I remember when I was speaking to Kevin about Republic Commando because you guys got told like partway through that you're all getting laid off at the end. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember that experience? That must have been yeah. annoying. It was horrible. Um, up until that point, you know, I was there at LucasArts for almost eight years, I think. And I, I was thinking, wow, this game industry is so stable. This is awesome. I'm going to be here forever. And then this, the layoff notice came by and I was just hit with a ton of bricks. It was, uh, I was crushed. Um, but the thing that, that kept us all going, I don't think anybody quit before uh, finishing Re Republic Commando, is that that was one team that was really good at just leaving the ego at the door. You can come into work and have whatever ideas be heard, uh, be taken seriously and considered. It didn't necessarily mean it would get into the game, but just the fact that it was heard was fantastic. And in fact, we at one point we stopped production towards the end. We stopped production, um, spent two or three days offsite, um, and broke into small groups and just had a huge um, uh, brainstorming session. How do we take what we have now and take it to the next level? What are some features that we we can do that would make Republic Commando really really shine? Um, and uh, that was a fantastic exercise. We came up with like a huge giant list of possibilities. And then the leads went in and kind of whittled that down to like the top five. We implemented those. And I think it took took the game to the next level. If I remember correctly, and I don't know if this, this came out of this or not, uh, but the, the visor swipe to clean off the bug splat and the droid splat, the oil splats, the 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 greenish yellow goo from the from the Geonosians, the blood from from humanoid characters or whatever. Um, this little uh, visor wipe laser thing would kind of come over the screen and clean it off. Um, it was a little touch. It didn't really affect gameplay all that much, except that it got rid of the 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 the, uh, the visual occluder but, stuff. The whose goo. idea was it? Was I don't yours? know who came. No, no, no. I don't think so. I, I, I don't know who came up with it, um, but it was one of those ideas. I was like, yes. Um, but I don't know if 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 this particular feature came from from that brainstorming session, but it was something like that, right? Where all these ideas would come up, and we did it, and we put it into the game, and it did take the the uh, the whole experience to another level. I think um, that was the kind of team that that that. This Republic Commando team was like everybody was thinking 
mainly about the game, about where it would go and how it would be received. And it was all about like what the player experience is going to be uh, and making that as good as possible. And so people stayed on. You know, yeah. of course, I think we were so close anyway, nobody really wanted to just let it go because they wanted it on their resume because we all knew it was going to be a great game. Yeah. Um, everybody loved it. Everybody was, we were all ready to go on to Revcom 2. Uh, we were like, yeah, as soon as we're done with this, we're jumping right on to Revcom 2. Let's go. Uh, but, you know, layoffs came. That was very, very sad. Yeah. Yeah. But you were responsible for the fine tuning of things, mainly the yeah. AI, wasn't it? Was it just the AI or did you well, fine tune other things? This was my first and only stint as a systems designer. And so I was tuning the weapons, weapon damage, health on all the enemies, um, the health of all the squad mates. Um, I was also in, in charge of tuning all of the PvP weapons for 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 multiplayer. So we had all of the weapons for for the for the campaign level, the the, the um, single player level, but we had to duplicate all of those guns uh, and weapons uh, for the PvP stuff because you can't really tune the two separate. Uh, uh, concurrently i mean they're totally different beasts so i was in charge of that as well and working with the uh the weapons programmer and in in figuring out all the different uh, uh ways that guns behave um and things like that um but i was also i'm sorry my dog is barking koa hush um <laughs> i was also in charge of the controller too um, and getting that working. So I really studied the Xbox controller and, uh, and Halo. And me and this other programmer, we uh, really dissected that apart to see just how far over the, the joystick goes before the player starts to turn or move. Um, and is there a ramp up for that? If you slam it, what happens? So we really dissected it, figured it out, and reverse engineered it to, to how we wanted it to behave for for our game um because wow. before then we didn't we didn't really have a model for it for that for that type for the xbox controller and the only thing that was out was for us to really study was was halo um and and so that was uh that was the probably the closest analogous analogous game that we could think of to to, to, to model after and so that was that was really interesting i had never done anything like that before um and i think we got a pretty good feel for it for the for the for the sticks and the and the movement for the for the characters um it felt appropriate you, you could you could, i think you could dial that in yourself as a player you can increase the the turn turn rate and stuff, stuff like that but the the default settings uh we worked a long time to try to get that dialed in and working properly so i did recently i'm sorry i did recently no. get republic commando for the switch and i thought honestly it's horrible is it (laughs) because they they didn't they didn't when they ported it to the switch they just did a straight port i think because they didn't consider how the switch uh joysticks work oh right it's almost impossible to aim because no matter how you tune the 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 joystick on the switch it just doesn't work well with the game um so they they didn't spend any time i don't think Whoever ported it didn't spend any time reworking the the algorithms for how the how the switch joysticks work. Right. Did so. well, hold on? Did you play it on the the switch Joy Cons or an actual Pro controller? 
on, on, on the Joy Cons. On, on oh, the Switch right. Joy Cons. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I well, they're, they're difficult to play. I, I can't play any first-person shooter with a with the Joy Cons. I find it too difficult. No, I, I tried. To, I, I tried have to, to use a pro controller. Yeah. Yeah, I tried Overwatch with it too. Like, oh, I can play Overwatch on the Switch. Nope. It's nope. horrible too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's your hands like if, if you sometimes i just find that it's 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 hard to use your hands I don't yeah know, maybe it's I, i'm mainly i'm mainly a keyboard and mouse player myself anyway yeah so. oh well then you'd find it even more difficult yeah yeah it was it was way frustrating so so um, how, how did you prepare for the layoff like were you obviously prepping your cv beforehand did kevin help you yeah so this is so this this is the first time i got laid off and i didn't know what to do <laughs> uh, i talked to you know a bunch of my coworkers and asked what they were doing um it just so happens that uh before um this project before repcom i was on a game called armed and dangerous with planet moon studios and that was on location on their on, in their studio we were on loan from lucas arts to help them with the level design um so i was on site at their studios and they got to know me when i heard the the layoffs were coming i immediately called them and said hey do you guys need somebody need a designer and they're like yeah come on over so i had that set up um, nice before the layoff so that actually worked out well <laughs> yeah because the last thing you'd want is to be unemployed and then you've got to go back to china find a job yeah. right because then you got to go through the interview process and that can take a while yeah you know exactly. just applying can take a while yeah. yeah 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 my whole career after LucasArts the longest place I'd, I'd stayed at was I think nihilistic and that was like three and a half years hmm. everywhere else has, has been like a year year and a half um maybe two years sometimes a little bit less than a year um so my career has been just all over the place because of that I've been is that is that because you just want to learn new skills or you want to try something different that you try and no, move around so not, often or not it's... no not be, not by choice it's because oh. of either studio closures or layoffs oh I just really okay so I, every time every time yeah i i've only left the studio maybe once or twice on my own um every time i wanted to, the place to kind of be my permanent home my permanent work home and since LucasArts, that hasn't really happened. Mm. Um, it has just been really unlucky that way. But I, I look at my friends, uh, like like Schmitty and, and and some of my other friends from, from my LucasArts days, and they've been laid off a few times, but not nearly as many times as I have. Um, it is quite common, though. I have noticed um, with a is. lot of developers that I speak to, they... I mean, because obviously you get into a routine, you get attached to a place, you get attached to the people, and then obviously it happens, and then you sometimes have to move cities. I think you're in a good position though, right? Because you can work remotely with yeah, your current role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, Lost Boys is is a remote first company, which is fantastic. And there's there's quite a few companies out there that are remote only, remote first. Um, I I have noticed a, a lot of big studios have gone back to kind of hybrid at least or if not full-time yeah. uh, in studio. Well, I, and a lot of, I, I feel like a lot of corporate America is doing the same, right? So yeah. they, they want people back in the offices. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, I don't either. Cause the, the, 
last three and a half years I've been working remotely, it's I feel even more productive than I than I have before when I was working in studio, mainly because I'm saving like two, maybe even three hours of commute time a day. Those are two or three hours I get back um, for my sanity. Yeah. And So when I get up in the morning, come to work downstairs, um, I'm ready to go. I'm refreshed. I'm clear headed. Um, and therefore, I think because of that, I'm way more productive than I was before working in a studio. But were you Um, driving to work when you were going yeah. to work? Cuz obviously America's very big on car culture, right? It doesn't have high speed rail Yeah. like say Europe or Asia does. So Yeah. when you're driving, you have to be mentally alert on the road. Yeah. So I could see by the time you get to work, you're already slightly drained. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when you come home, you're just completely gone. You're Yeah. you're done. It's like you hardly have an evening and then you go to bed and get up the next morning, you get it back in the car. Um, it's pretty horrible. Um and and having I mean, the silver lining of COVID is that it showed a lot of people that working from home is not only viable, it's actually better. Um, people are much more productive. I found, and I think studies have shown that as well, Yeah, well, that, everything seems to indicate that way. But I yeah. sometimes wonder if there's some micromanagers out there that feel like if you're if I can't see you, you're not Yeah. working. Well, that's the thing is, it's, I'm not working in a vacuum by any means. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on I'm on Discord every day with my team. I'm working literally in parallel with them, talking with them. We're getting to know each other. We're bonding. But we're also getting stuff done. We're talking about problems that, that arise. We have programmers sitting in our Discord channel,
working in an office again or no? You just wouldn't no. accept any role that didn't allow at least hybrid. If it was hybrid, it would have to be obviously nearby. Yeah. Um, but um, but even still, I I totally prefer working remotely. And if I can keep doing that the rest of my career, yes. <laughs> that's that's how I want to work. Well, I suppose it also depends if you're introverted or you're extroverted and you get your energy from people or you don't. Like if if I, I'm not sure if you are, if you are um, extroverted or not, like where you get I, your energy from. I am naturally introverted um, by default, okay. and I had to I had to learn to be extroverted to be in this in this business. So how did you do that? How did you learn to be extroverted? Just by doing it, practicing, and what, just and just randomly talking to people, or yeah, just bringing like up issues that I normally or... would just keep. Well, networking, but most you know with people that you work with, um, right being much more open and and engaging people more than i would naturally do hmm. but but i tell you what there's one thing that really kind of opened my eyes to what um being a leader is and being um uh a more outgoing person was i a friend of mine was looking was posted on facebook saying hey does anybody any of my level design friends want to teach um uh, game design at a local junior college and i was like oh that sounds like it might be kind of fun i think i could teach yeah and so and so i so i uh, i ended up teaching a game design class a two-parter game design one game design two um at a local jc and i did that for two years once a week night classes um and uh for me that was probably one of the most probably the biggest turning point in my career because i've realized for me what leadership is it's, it's teaching it's mentoring it's being engaged with the students and then in turn being engaged with the level designers who are on my team understanding who they are as people understanding who they are as designers and how to get the most out of them and if they're if they're having issues like what are those issues and helping them get through those issues and figure out how to how to get the most out of their work mm. um that class taught me that and was probably the biggest learning experience in my career and yeah I, without that class i don't know if i would be even a lead now um uh, i think well, i would price to you yeah because <laughs> you you come across to me as a naturally talkative person and that you'd get your energy from people so if that's not the case then well done <laughs> yeah no I, I i'm i'm a total introvert and um like 10 years ago i probably would never have agreed to, to even do this um and uh it, it, it's some of it is learning that you can have this confidence and be okay with it. I was. I always suffered from 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 poor self confidence. Uh, I always had, for the longest time, imposter syndrome as a level designer. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of game developers get that, and yeah. um, a lot of game composers get that as well. It's quite yeah. common, actually. Yeah, it is super common. And I think I think the reason why, at least in my case, is I I was self taught, and so I always had ah. in the back of my mind, what am I missing? 
And back then there weren't any schools. Mm. Um, but every, everywhere I look, like I see a Kevin Schmidt, he's super competent. He's super good at what he does. It's like he went to architecture school. And he 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 uh, he graduated as an architect, and I was like, oh man, he knows so much. And I know jack squat compared to him. It's like, why am I even here, right? Yeah. Um, and it took me years, decades, to come to a place where I felt, no, I do know my stuff. I do know how to make games. I do know how to lead and. um mentor because i have all this experience and if why do i have all this experience if i'm not going to share that with people mm. right um so that's kind of like what gets me going every day it's not just making the games but it's working with people and seeing people grow seeing myself grow and learn with them um and seeing that get translated into the the games that they make and the levels that they make um So that's cool, that's man. for me. That's for me. Yeah, that's the fun of it. That's the that's the coolest part of my job. <laughs> that's the cool. That's a cool story. Now I can see you getting passionate as you're talking about leadership and mentoring people. So Thanks. I think that yeah, just keep on down that road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep keep going, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> I'll wrap up there. But uh, okay. if anyone wants to keep up to date with what you're doing or where you're going in the future. Uh, is there any place they can do that? Yeah. Um, I know you got a I'm website. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I have my own portfolio. Uh, it's just jeffreykung.com, um, K-U-N-G. Um, LinkedIn, you can find me. I think I'm Jeffrey Sonden Kung on LinkedIn. Um, where else can you find me? Instagram. Um, But your Instagram oh, have... has, has pictures of, um, what is it? Like some type of plant, is it? Carnivorous, carnivorous plants. I'm yeah. like... I'm like heavy. That's a, that's my hobby. That's my side hobby. What what taking um, pictures of of it? Well, I have I grow them. Oh, so I take true. Pictures, okay, I, that I makes sense. Because my... I was I was wondering. I was like, every single picture <laughs> is is a picture of that plant, and I was like, what does he take pictures yeah. of them? Just ugh. yeah. Two years two years ago, I was looking for a a a, a COVID hobby because everybody's locked down and stuff. Oh, and right. thought, oh okay. maybe maybe i'll do maybe i'll do house plants because i used to grow house plants and then i stumbled upon these uh videos about carnivorous plants like oh i used to love venus flytraps i didn't know how to grow them i killed them all the time so i watched these videos and they showed me how to actually take care of them it was super easy wow. um and so Two years ago, I started with a couple of plants. I'm at like, I don't know, 160 plants now, uh, <laughs> tropical and temperate plants. And it's it's a fantastic community, too. And so the community for Wait, it is a community awesome. for it? Oh, yeah. No, this, 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 I belong to this Bay Area Carnivorous Plant Society here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Wow. And there's there's meetings all the time. And and uh, yeah, there, there again, being an introvert before, I would never have done that. But now, you know, when we have these uh, show and sales and stuff, I'll go, um, I'll volunteer to help out uh, the, the show. Um, and then just like start meeting all these, all these people online uh, who have a common interest with carnivorous plants. It's, it's totally fun. So. Wow, I would never even think that there would be a community for carnivorous <laughs> plants. There There's really a is a community for everything, for everything isn't there? Man, yeah. it's cool though. <laughs> Have you yeah. have you found a way to incorporate it into some sort of design? Um or a game? Not, 
No, you got to make that no. your goal. You got to make that your thing before your career ends. You got to implement one into a game somehow. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, hey, uh, thanks so much, Jeff. I very much appreciate you doing this. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been great a, chatting. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so yeah. much. No worries. Uh, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe. Excellent.